And now, a message from Pastor Josh Carmody. Um, so we've been talking about courageous. Everybody say courageous. courageous. I don't know where it is. There it is. It's stories of four brave women. We're halfway through. Does anybody remember who we've talked about so far? Just throw it out. Ruth. I heard of Ruth. That was last week. What was the other one? Rahab, all right? So we've talked about Rahab. We've talked about Ruth. Both of those ladies end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They both have a powerful story of uh, brave women who did courageous uh, things. And today I'm excited. We're going to talk about uh, someone you may or may not have heard of, and that is Esther. All right, um, so we're going to talk about Esther this morning. We're going to talk about her story, and I have a few things that I want us to concentrate on once the story is finished. So um, we're going to do that today, and uh, the book of Esther, it's one of two books in the Bible named after women, uh, the one we talked about last week, Ruth, and, uh, and then Esther. And I went to look at Esther, and Esther's 10 chapters long. I don't remember it being that long, um, but in order to get the full story this morning, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Esther chapters 1 through 10 this morning. I'm not actually going to do, I couldn't, you guys are like, wait, is that, is he serious? Is he not? Okay, so I'm not going to actually read it all. That would be a lot. Um, so the events of this story take place in Persia's capital city of Susa, where Esther and other Jews have settled after Babylonian exile. All right, so that's kind of the background. That's kind of what's going on. Don't have a lot of time this morning to dive into everything that's going on, but just know the Jewish people, God's chosen people, are living in a land that is not their own. All right, they are in exile, and uh, so that's where our story picks up. Now, the king of Persia, his name, if you read in your Bible, you might see it one of three different ways. Uh, you might see it as Artaxerxes, you might see his name as Xerxes, and you might even see King Ahasuerus. And you say to yourself, what's up with this guy? Well, it's just different. I am Josh. I'm also Joshua. Um, in high school, people called me Chuck. Um, don't ask about it. It's not important. But same kind of thing. You get Xerxes. You get Artaxerxes. You get a Ahasuerus. So anyway, we're not Chuck. Um, and, and so I think the translation I use, the New Living Translation, I think he's in here as Xerxes. Um, and so the king... Xerxes throws a party. Now, this isn't just like a, hey, you want to come to a party? This is like a party that lasts for days and days and days and days. I mean, they knew how to party, all right, in Persia. This was, this was an event, the, you know, a week-long event of nothing but partying. Well, at, at one point, he asked for his queen, Queen Vashti, uh, to come out. He, she was beautiful. The Bible says she's beautiful. Um, you know, he wanted to just bring her out and show her off to all the guests, like, hey, look at my pretty wife. And you say, wow, that seems kind of vain. But I was flipping through some Valentine's, like Facebook, and there was like, oh, check out my hot wife. Oh, check out my ex Yeah, so we still do this today, okay? Um, and so he's like, you guys, yeah, I saw some, some guilty, like, no, uh. okay, so... They, they bring him out, you know, bring, he says, I want Queen Vashti to come out. Well, she refuses. She's like, no, I'm not coming out. So she straight up told the king, no, bad idea, right? So the king's advisors, they get together and they're like, listen, um, Queen Vashti just told you no. Uh, if people catch wind of that, that, you know, the queen can tell the king no, that a woman can tell the man no, we're going to have problems all over the land in all these households. Women are going to rise up all over the place and say no to their husbands, all right? Now, this is the Bible. This isn't Josh's, like, take on anything. That's just what was going on, okay? Um, and, and so that's what's going on. And so they said, you know what? She can't be queen anymore. She's no longer queen. 
you're gonna, we're going to strip her of her title, remove her from my presence. I mean, that's, that's how it's going to be because I am the king, and if you disobey me, then I guess you're no longer the queen. Well, the king, like most men, makes a decision and then kind of immediately regrets it, right? Um, I'm sure none of you guys ever do. Okay, so he's like, you know what? I kind of miss that I don't have a queen. I'm a, I'm a king without a, a queen. And, and someone had this idea. They're like, hey, how about, how about we just find all the, the pretty ladies that happen to be virgins, all the single ladies, all the single... It didn't work in first service either. Okay, it's just not funny. It's just not funny. All right, so all the single virgin, all the pretty ladies, and let's, let's parade them in the castle. Let's bring them in for the king to look at, and then he can choose a queen. And the king was like, this is awesome. It is good to be king, right? He's like, let's do that. Like, let's, let's take care of that. And, and so um, the, that, that kind of decree goes out, and there's a guy by the name of Mordecai. Everybody say Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is a Jew, um, and uh, he is raising his niece, Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther. All right, so he's raising her as his own because her parents, we don't know what happened to them, but we know that she's an orphan. She doesn't have a mom. She doesn't have a dad. Her uncle Mordecai is raising her, okay? And so he gets wind of this. He hears about this, and he's like, hey, Esther is beautiful and is a virgin and single. Like, she should go stand before the king. Because who knows, baby, she'll become the queen, right? And so uh, they take her to the castle, castle, the palace. <laughs> That's what happens when you say castle and palace at the same time. To the palace with all the other young virgin single ladies. And they go to be prepared. They, it's a year-long preparation. And, and, and Esther immediately finds favor. They give her a nice place to stay. They give her seven maidservants, seven to attend to her every need. And for six months that first year, she spends, it, it says that, uh, they, that she used oil of myrrh and perfumes for the other six months. And so literally for a year, she was pampered and like oiled and perfumed for like a year. I mean, just like a spa all day, every day, seven people at your site. Ladies, how many of you are like, sign me up? All right, a few of you. The rest of you are like, no, that's a little much. Okay, so a whole year. If you're going to stand before the king, everybody knows you got to look oily and smell good. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. But it was just, you have to make sure you're beautiful and prepared and standing before the king. So her time finally comes to stand before the king. And he's like, there she is. That's the woman. That's going to be the new queen. And it was Esther, right? So Esther becomes the new queen. The Bible says she's beautiful. He, he, he just instantly knows um, that she is going to be the queen. And so uh, while this is happening, shortly after she becomes queen, Mordecai, again, her uncle, is, is hanging out by the city gate. It talks a lot in Esther about how Mordecai is hanging out at the city gate. And you're like, what is this guy doing all the time at the city gate? But that was where all the activity was. That's where people would come and go and gather and hang out. And so he's there and he overhears a plot uh, to kill the king. There's these two guys that are like, hey, we have access to the king. We should kill him. We don't like him right? So he hears this. He tells Esther. He says, Esther, listen up. There are two guys that want to kill the king. And so they investigate it. They look into it. Sure enough, it's true. And they decide to kill uh, those two men and put an end to that, uh, to their plan of wanting to kill the king. Now, remember that. Hang on to that. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. And then the Bible goes on to talk about this man named Haman. Everybody say, hey, man. Amen. 
So Haman, uh, he's the bad guy, all right? I want everybody to picture in your mind a villain, all right? The guy, that, the, the bad guy. Any TV or movie or anything, you guys, you got a good idea of what the bad guy looks like, right? Okay, now that's Haman, okay? Haman's the bad guy. He's a high-ranking official. He's right up there uh, with the king. And so wherever he goes, wherever Haman goes, people bow down to Haman out of respect because of his position. They bow down to him. So all these people are bowing down to him and it gets to his head because there's one person that refuses to bow down to Haman and that person is Mordecai. Now Mordecai being a Jew knows that there's only one true God and one person you bow down to and that is God, the creator of heaven and earth. So he refuses to bow down to Haman. This upsets Haman and he goes home to pout about it. And his lip comes out. I'm just kidding, none of that's in the Bible. So he starts pouting. And he's complaining and whining to his wife. And so they're talking, and he's whining a little bit. And they come up with the plan. Like, we got an idea. How about, Mordecai's a Jew, how about we get the king to sign a decree that says there are people living in this land, the Jewish people that are living in this land. They're, they're, they're bad people. They're destructive. Look at the history of all the things they've done. We want them out of here. So let's sign something into law. Let's get the king to sign something into law that we can kill, destroy, annihilate all the Jews in all of Persia so that Mordecai can die and everybody like him. This is Haman's plan. Like I said, Haman is the villain. He's the bad guy, all right? And so he goes to the king, he tells him what's going on, and the king's like, yep, let's ride it, let's do it. Takes the ring, stamps it, his signet ring, that basically says this is a decree from the king, whatever this says, do it. And once it's been stamped, once the king says it, you can never revoke it. It was against the law. You could not revoke it. So that was on the, 12, on the 13th day of the 12th month, it was gonna be time to annihilate all of the Jews in the kingdom. Haman's a bad dude. Because one person out of an entire palace and kingdom would not bow down to him, all right? So Mordecai, again, sitting at the gate, hanging out, gets wind of this, hears this. And he starts mourning and crying and wailing because his people are gonna die. They've been sentenced to death. And so he goes to Esther and he says, Esther, here's the plan. This is what Haman wants to do. You need to go talk to the king. And let him know that Haman's going to do this. And she's like, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I haven't been invited to see the king. And you know that law stipulates if I have not been invited and I go into the king's chamber, he has the right to put me to death. If he extends his like scepter, his, his rod, with the, if he extends it out and I, then I can touch it and then he's like welcoming me in. But that's the only exception. I don't think I can do it. I don't you know, want to die. So Mordecai says this in Esther 4. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Anybody ever heard that scripture before? It's like one of the most popular scriptures in the Bible. I'm sure you've heard it. Verse 15. And if not, you're hearing it for the first time today. Verse 15 says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as as Esther had ordered him. So they all decide, you know what, before I just go march in and talk to the king, how about we all fast, we pray, let's not eat anything, let's not drink anything, let's pray uh, to God and let's, let's make sure that we cover this thing in prayer, all right? Let's talk about that. So she, she's ready, it's time, she walks into the king's chamber, he extends the scepter, Whew, she doesn't have to die, right? And so she, he goes, what is it, Esther, what would you like, um, ask me anything, Anything you want, I will give you, even up to like half of my kingdom. If you ask me for half my kingdom, I'll give it to you right now. It's yours. What do you want? And she said, well, I was wondering if you and Haman, the bad guy, the villain, who has a plan to destroy all Jews, would you, king, and Haman have supper with me tomorrow night? The king's like, yeah, sure, no problem, right? So supper time. I mean, that's not, how many of you be like, yeah, sure, sign me up, supper, why not? So they have supper. Haman's there, the king's there, Esther's there. And again, the king asks, he says, Esther, uh, what is it? I mean, you call this here and it's, you know, great food and everything. What is it that you want? Do you have anything that you would ask of me? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Anything you want, you just ask me what, you just ask me and I'll give you what you want. He said, would you and Haman have supper with me again tomorrow? It's like, sure. Sensing a theme and a repeating pattern, but yeah, why not, right? Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if my wife says, hey, Josh, I'm going to cook you a really good meal tomorrow. Are you good with that? I'll be like, yeah. I don't even, it's like a no-brainer. You can do that as many times as you'd like. And her meals are very delicious, by the way. Okay. So um, it didn't work. I didn't get any brownie points for that. <laughs> um, and so anyway, Haman leaves that dinner the second night, and he's just pumped. He's just ate with the king and the queen, just him, the king and the queen. I mean, how awesome is that in all of Persia? Like he is the man, right? And not only that, now Esther's invited him to do it again the next time. I mean, Haman is just like, he's walking on air, man. Like he is just like excited about life. Probably saying, look at how awesome I am. Everywhere he goes, all oh, these people are bowing down to me. This is awesome. This is great. He gets to the gate where Mordecai's hanging out and Mordecai just looks at him. And he thinks to himself, I hate that Mordecai. He just won't bow down to me. Doesn't he know how awesome I am? I mean, I just ate with the king and queen, and tomorrow I'm eating with the king. Like, I am a big deal. So he goes home and he pouts some more. He was a pouty villain. (laughs) And his wife is like, hey, let's just take care of this. Like, he's not bowing down to you. He's disrespectful. Let's build gallows, and let's hang him from his neck. Let's just hang him. And kill him. Let's just be done with Mordecai. He's like, wife, that's a good idea. Like, we should do that. And so he had the gallows built, really, really tall gallows, so that everybody would see Mordecai hanging from these gallows. So now he's like, man, I feel good about this. Everybody else loves me. I'll just kill Mordecai, and then everybody loves me. Right? So he's walking. He's going to go tell the king what he wants to do. He wants to go ask for permission. Hey, I want to hang Mordecai for this reason and this reason and whatever, right? So he's feeling good about himself. He's feeling pumped. He's feeling jazzed. He's heading over to the king's palace, right? Before he gets there, the king's having trouble sleeping. Like he's just not sleeping well. I don't know if it was something he ate or it was just thinking about something or what's going on. So he had someone read him out of the book of uh, basically a historical book of things that have happened in the kingdom. And they come across this story of a guy named Mordecai who stopped a plan that these two men had to kill the king. And he said, hey, uh, has anything ever been done uh, for Mordecai? I mean, he saved my life. I feel like we should probably 
do something for the guy, right? And they're like, no, nothing's, nothing's been done. And he goes, well, who's out in my court? Who's running around out there? And like, oh, Haman just showed up. He's like, perfect. All right, bring Haman in. All right, so we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 6. Remember, Haman was going to go ask uh, to hang Mordecai on the gallows. So here we go, Esther 6. So Haman came in and said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Well, Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robe and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. Guess who the high-ranking official was that got to take Mordecai all around town? Hey, man. At this point, he's wishing his name would have been changed to Oh, man. Hashtag dad jokes. All right, so he, he was like, man, he goes home again after all this, and he's talking to his wife, and he's pouting again. And she says, you know what? This is not going to end well for you. This is not going to end well. And so it's time for him to go to dinner the second time with the king and queen, and we pick up in Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and on this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I'll give it to you even if it's half the kingdom. And Queen Esther replied, if I've found favor, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? And Esther replied, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. So he gets found out in front of the queen and the king. King storms out in anger. Haman's pleading for his life. The king comes back, and as he's pleading for his life, as he's, you know, laying hold of Esther, the king loses it. I mean, loses it and says, man, you're the worst. Get out of here. And someone just happened to say, hey, you know, um, Haman built some gallows to hang Mordecai on. And the king said, I got an idea. Haman, why don't you go hang out for a while? So... So, irony of ironies, he built these to kill Mordecai and ends up hanging on them himself. And you think, wow, God's good. And he is. Mordecai then is uh, exalted to the place that Haman was. And now he's in command of a lot. And now he has a place 
of prominence. But here's the problem. The decree still went out. And on the 13th day of the 12th month, the Jews were still going to be killed. And so they had to come up with a plan. They're like, isn't there anything we can do? And it's like, no, once it's written, it's in law. There's There's nothing we can do about it. He said, what we can do is we can send out another decree. And we can tell the Jews that they can fight back. So let's check this out in Esther chapter 8. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. As we continue, it says the king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. The day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. A copy of this decree was issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. So urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. As we continue in Esther 9, it says, So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped Uh, The enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harden them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. All the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So the Jews went ahead on the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. That's awesome. That is awesome. So they were destined to be destroyed. A new decree went out that said, Jewish people, you can attack and ward off those who try to attack you. They did, and they put all of their enemies to rest. And I think it's cool that even the high officials and all the people that were there overseeing everyone, they were on Mordecai's side. They were on the Jews' side, and so they celebrated. The Bible talks of they had a feast, because when you celebrate, you got to eat, right? You have a feast, you have a festival, you got to party it up. And so the Feast of Purim, was a two-day celebration to celebrate the Jews' victory. And it's still a Jewish holiday to this day. In February or March, they celebrate the victory, the victory that God gave them uh, because of Queen Esther. So there's a lot. There's a lot in these 10 chapters. I feel like I did it quicker than what it would have taken to read through all of it, I hope. But there's a lot in these chapters. I hope you go home this week and that you look over it and read it for yourself. It's a cool story and I got as many details as I could, but I'm sure I left a few out. But there's a lot to talk about. We could talk about the Feast of Purim. We could talk about fasting. We could talk about praying. We could talk about that scripture in Esther 4.14 where it says, who knows, maybe you were appointed queen for such a time as this. I mean, we could talk about all those things, but I got three things. Everybody say three things. I got three things I want to pull out of this text this morning. Um, I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, but I hope you can go home and look through some of this for yourself this week. Here's the first thing. You can write this down if you're a person that writes things down, but God prepares you for what he has planned for you. 
God prepares you for what he has planned for you. So here's the thing. Esther prepared for a year just to stand before a king. I mean, that seems like a little bit of overkill. Anybody have you ever remember going out on a first date? Take you a year to get ready? <laughs> I mean, that's a little excessive, right? I mean, just a little bit. So she was being prepared. She thought, I mean, yeah, we're going to go stand before a king, but there was so much more. She was being prepared ahead of time, right, to become a queen. So God prepares you for what he has planned for you. Look at Jeremiah 29, 11. It's another very popular Bible verse. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. It was true for the nation of Israel all those years ago, and it's true for us today. God has a plan for you to give you a future and a hope. And God is preparing you right now for what he has planned for you. Look at Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So what does God have planned for you? He has planned for you for you to do good things. For you and I to do good things. We are God's masterpiece and we were saved not because we're good, not because we're perfect, not because we deserve it or we can earn it, but we were saved because God loves us. And now he prepares for us what he has planned for us. And so he has good things for us to do. And he's preparing us for those things. Look at Philippians 1.6. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God is doing something good in us. He is faithful to complete the work that he started in you. So he's still working on us. How many of you are perfect? Got any perfect Christians in here? I got news for you. You're not going to be. You say, but isn't that the goal? No, the goal is to be as close to Jesus Christ as you possibly can so there's no room for anything else in your life. So there's no room for the world to corrupt you. So there's no room for your own thoughts and desires and attitudes to get in the way. You say, Jesus, I give you my life. And are we there yet? We're not there 100% because I don't know about you, there's still a little bit of me left in me. I thank God that I'm a lot farther than where I was, but I know I'm not finished yet. And I know that God is faithful to continue the work that he started in me. Amen? Amen? He is still preparing me for what he has planned for me. And he's still preparing you for what he has planned for you. The second thing, God cares for the orphan. God cares for the orphan. Esther was an orphan. Her uncle raised her as his own. God cares for the orphan. God cares for the widows. God cares for the homeless. God cares for the foreigners. God cares for those who have been pushed to the margins of society. That everybody else neglect and looks down on and talks bad about and has these ideas and opinions and judgment. I want you to know God cares for them. Let me read you some scriptures. They're, they're awesome. You're going to like it. 
Psalm 68, 5. Father to the fatherless defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God is father to the fatherless. He's defender of widows. Look at Psalm 82, 3. It says, give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. That's what you and I are to do. Give justice to the poor and the orphan and uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Look at Psalm 146. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. That's what God does. He protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans. He cares for the widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. God cares for the orphans. He cares for the widows. He cares for the homeless. He cares for the foreigners. He cares for all of us. Amen? All of us. It does not matter who you are or what you have done. God loves you because he's created you fearfully and wonderfully. He knows the hairs that are on your head. He knows the thoughts that you think. He knows the days that are ahead of you. Before you even lived one, they were planned out, the Bible says. He knows you. He loves you. He cares about you. Esther was an orphan queen. She was an orphan who became a queen. An orphan should never become a queen. And yet, there she was. There she was, an orphan. No mom, no dad. The lowest of low. Outcast, marginalized, looked down on by society. Who became the queen of an entire nation and saved millions of people. It does not matter who you are. God loves you. It does not matter what your past has been. You have a bright future with Christ. It doesn't matter that she was an orphan. She was an orphan who became a queen. It doesn't matter what you label yourself as or what anybody else has labeled you as. You are a child of God. You are redeemed. You have been rescued. You are free. Because the Bible says, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And so we are free from our bad thoughts. We are free from our addictions. We are free from our wrong thinking. We are free from all of that. It doesn't matter what we've been labeled. We know that God loves us and cares for us and he cares for the orphan. Amen? Amen. So what does that look like? I got a couple stats for you. This week I was at a meeting talking about this DHS. This is the government. This is the state coming to churches, pastors, leaders in the church saying, we want the churches to help us out. Now, that's pretty cool. And we say, well, how can we help you out? And they have a lot of ideas and they have a lot of thoughts, but there's 4,000 kids in foster care in Iowa. There's 400,000 and growing in the entire United States in foster care, removed from their mom, removed from their dad, removed from their mom and dad, living with strangers. Some of them don't even have a family to go to, so they have to be put in a group home, not really an orphanage, but a, a home, a ward of the state. 400,000, almost half a million. And we said, what can we do? And this is what they said. This is what DHS, the government, our state government said. They said this. They said, one church, one child. They said, if one church would foster one child, that every foster kid in America would have a home. 
So here's the state, the government recognizing that they need the church. And remember, church isn't over when the service ends. They need us. Now, you might be saying, Josh, I'm never going to be a, a foster parent. Like, that's just not, I'm just not going to do it, never going to do it. That is totally fine. Maybe there's something else you can do. Maybe you could give aid to someone who is a foster parent or is a foster home. Maybe you can offer to babysit. I know I talked to someone once. It's like, even if someone could just come over while I'm here and watch my kids so I can do laundry, that would be great. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. You don't even have to, you just show up at someone's house and, and entertain a child for a few hours so that they could, you know, clean the house uninterrupted or just whatever. Or you say, I don't know, maybe that's not something, but maybe you have a neighbor who's a widow. Maybe you could, you have a neighbor who, I don't know, needs help. Maybe you could rake leaves. Maybe you could, maybe they're elderly and unable to do something. Maybe they're a widow or a widower. Maybe you could go and rake leaves or move snow. Maybe you're living next to someone who migrated to the United States illegally. Maybe you could offer to pay for some lawyer fees and attorney fees. Maybe you could help them process the documents necessary so that they can enter this country legally. Instead of judging and condemning and, and saying, send them home. What about when you have a neighbor who's a foreigner? Because the Bible that I just read says that God cares for them. And if God cares for them, I feel like those who follow in his footsteps should also care. So when the state is asking us to help them, I think we should do it. When there's people around us who need us to love them well, I think we should do it because we say that we're the church. And we say that we follow the footsteps of Jesus. So let's do it. So here's my third step, the third point. First one, God prepares you for what he's planned for you. God cares for the orphan. And number three, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Now notice I did not say that all things are good. I didn't say that all things in our life are perfect and hunky-dory and just perfect and excellent and awesome all the time. I did not say that. I said all things work together for good. Now in Esther's life, she didn't have a mom or a dad. Haman hated Mordecai. Haman hated all Jews. They were all destined to be killed. That doesn't, doesn't that sound good? It doesn't sound good, but all things work together for good. Look at Genesis 50, 19 through 20. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So here's a story of a guy named Joseph who was hated by his brothers, thrown into a well, sold into slavery, went to jail for something he did not do. But then he became second in command of an entire nation and ended up saving the very family that threw him into that pit to begin with. And he said, I know you intended harm for me, but God intended it for good because now I was able to save all of these people. That's so awesome. All things work together for good. Look at Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Remember, God prepares you for what he has planned for you. All things work together for good. You mean these things that I'm going through that aren't so great, like that actually is like God preparing me for something ahead? Yeah, I think so. 
I think the things that we go through, I didn't say all things are good, but I said all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. What Jesus did was for, for our own good. He suffered for a crime he never committed. He suffered, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was tormented, he was crucified on a cross for us. Look at 2 Timothy 1. Never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. And he did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. That's what Jesus has done for us. All things work together for good. He suffered he died on a cross, but he did it so that you and I could find grace, so that you and I could find forgiveness. Said he planned that from the beginning of time, actually from before the beginning of time. Wrap your head around that one. Why would he do that? To show us his grace through Jesus Christ. He has loved you since before the beginning of time. For more information on New Covenant, contact us at 3318 Fifth Avenue South, Fort Dodge, Iowa, 50501. Or you can call us at 515-955-6222.